Leadership beyond a definition. The boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide. Conversations about growth. Leadership Unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. I am your host, Virginia Hardy. Joining me today is Anita Brown Graham, UNC's Gladys Hall Coates Distinguished Professor of Public Law and Government and the founder and director of NC Impact Initiative at the UNC School of Government, which is a special initiative that seeks to expand the school's capacity to work with public officials on complex policy issues, including economic mobility, the expansion of pre-kindergarten and extending the labor pool. Anita previously taught at the School of Government from 1994 to 2006, specializing in governmental liability and economic development aimed at revitalizing communities. In 2007, she served as director of the Institute for Emerging Issues at NC State University, where she led efforts to build North Carolina's capacity for economic development and prosperity, working with business, government, and higher education leaders from across the state. Anita began her career as a law clerk in the Eastern District of California. She is a William C. Friday Fellow, an American Marshall Fellow, and an Eisenhower Fellow. The White House named her a 2013 Champion of Change for her work at the Institute of Emerging Issues. And the Triangle Business Journal named her a 2014 Woman in Business for her policy leadership in the state and named her a 2017 CEO of the Year. Anita serves on the boards of several organizations, including Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina. She earned an undergraduate degree from Louisiana State University and a law degree from UNC Chapel Hill. Welcome, Anita. We're excited to have you today and to be able to chat with you. And so my first question to you is around NC Impact. I know you are the founder and director of NC Impact and you explored so many issues facing North Carolina communities. Uh, I've watched some of those on television, on your television program on, uh, on public TV. Uh, talk to me about your experience related to NC Impact. What, what was your impetus for wanting to start this and to, um, to have some impact in various communities? After working for 20 years on community development issues in North Carolina, it became very clear to me that there were at least two sets of issues. There were those that had technical fixes and one institution, one sector was able to implement those fixes. And then the big stuff that really mattered required adaptive leadership, required people to come together across sectors, across types of institutions, sometimes across ideology, roll up their sleeves and get something done. And I am really excited about that second set. And so NC Impact really tries to do three things. The first is some deep experimentation in a number of communities each year in which we help facilitate a process by which communities can come together and get the tough stuff done. The second is to share broadly with everybody who is inclined to listen what we are learning and sometimes what we're learning is not about the work that we're doing but it's about the work that we're observing and that's what the NC Impact television show is all about and then the third 
um, strategy we have is to try to create a culture of innovation in North Carolina so that we become the state known for the best reflexes around collaborative leadership. So the adaptive leadership part, how is it that you integrate that into the various facilitative conversations and, and actions that NC Impact actually um, undergoes? So Virginia, it's interesting. Um, collaborative leadership is probably the most difficult type of leadership, almost by definition. All of the people with whom we work are used to being in charge. Mm -hmm. So yes. the process by which you have to step back and recognize that other people bring expertise into the room and there has to be space for their leadership and their expertise can be really hard for communities. I, I find maybe the hardest conversation I have with communities across North Carolina is the one about the need to build trust, the need to build trust across differences and what it will take in order to do that. And in some ways it feels counterintuitive to some of the folks with whom we work. And yet I will tell you in every single evaluation of the work, People say they could not have gotten as far as they have had they not paused to take the time to build relationship, trust, and a sense of reciprocity. So talk about the reciprocity for a second, right? We've not really had that conversation much on the, on the podcast. We, we talk about building relationships and building trust and all, all of those angles. But what's the reciprocity angle? So in some ways, you know, it really goes to the fundamental nature of us as human beings. I do for you, I give to you, I trust you. You do for me, you give to me, you trust me. When you bring a number of organizations into one of these collaboratives, what's really important, maybe more important than anything else, is the recognition that you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do. And I have absolute confidence about your accountability. But the reason I can do that is because I know you and your organization or me and my organization equally will do what we say we're gonna do and you can trust that in terms of accountability. And, and there are times when I talk about this to people in groups and I try to say, let's just think about your own life. And the people for whom you immediately would be responsive to, you wouldn't stop to ask questions. And almost by definition, there are people who interact with you in the same way. That's how it is with institutions. That's how it is with communities. That's how it is with collaborative leadership. And so recognizing and being intentional, building of a sense of reciprocity around accountability is critical to the work. Yeah, and I completely agree in that to be able to uh, to trust that the other organization or the other person is going to do what is said is that's some integrity and some ethics involved in all of that as well. So, so yeah, well, that's that's totally true. And if I might just interrupt okay. to say uh, for a minute, what's different about when you're just working in a single organization, a hierarchical in organization is people have formal power over you. Mm -hmm. Your supervisor can make you do something. Right. In this collaborative work, nobody has formal power over you. It is all soft influence. 
And so without that kind of hierarchy, it is that much more important that people know that you're good for it. If you say you're going to do it, you're good for it. So Anita, we're talking about bringing those leaders together from the various agencies and institutions and, and across various sectors. But there's also some grassroots efforts, right? There's, uh, there's some grassroots leaders, leadership that really does play a major role in this. So I would assume. So what's necessary or what have you used to help build the community and for the community, of course, to have that ownership in this collaborative process and understanding their leadership also needs to be, leadership skills need to be enhanced and, and cultivated. So, you know, it's interesting that you would ask that question, Virginia, because it has been my experience that maybe the hardest part of the work is helping people who are in positions of formal leadership understand that they can't move this work forward without engaging people who are leaders in community but may not have positions of formal leadership. So one of the things that I like to say, whether we're talking about opioids and the crisis around that, or increasing educational attainment or ensuring that we have strong food systems is to formal leaders, if you could have fixed this on your own, you would have done that already. Like this is what you've been doing for 30 years and you haven't fixed it. So work with me for a moment here. The expertise of people on the ground, if that's not part of the stakeholder analysis, I can tell you that the collaborative process will not be successful. I've not ever seen a collaborative process successful without not just inviting grassroots leaders to the table, but recognizing that they bring to the table an insight and a set of ingredients that formal leaders of organizations and communities do not have. They know better than anybody else, not just what the problem definition should say, but which interventions are likely to be useful. So Anita, as you were talking, an example came to mind, and that is when, when I first started at the university, the med school was wanting to go in and help a particular community in eastern North Carolina and they went in to do the to do the work and the community leaders one in particular said no 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 you you can't just come into our community you don't know us you don't know what we need you can't come in here and just 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 put things in place we don't want you and so there was some regrouping that needed to take place to go back in and not just invite them to the table but actually listen to that the grassroots effort and the grassroots leaders in that particular community in order to learn the community to be able to go in and to do whatever needed to get done. But it wasn't about us saying what needed to happen. It was the community telling us what needed to happen. So that's a perfect example. And, you know, language is so important in this work. Um, as you may be aware the chancellor at USC Chapel Hill has asked NC Impact to help coordinate a pan-university um, strategy for helping communities to respond um, to the wide ranging and painful impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
the language that we have to use that I've been absolutely insistent that our campus community use as we approach communities on the ground is how can we partner with you? What are your priorities? What are your instincts about the way you respond to those priorities? And what are your ideas about how a university might help you with that? But we have to understand as academics, and this is true of all formal institutions, we cannot know more about community than the community members themselves. And yes. yay for that community that pushed back. Yes, I agree. Actually, I was I was quite impressed with that um, because it did it did did say you know yeah you you can't just come in here and and work your magic. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Magic does not work that way. It and the not. truth is, you know when you hit that magical moment where somebody from some corner of the room from whom you might least expect it, gets up and says something, and you can see the light bulbs going off in everybody else's head. That's the magic. That's the magic. So Eastern North Carolina is a, uh, a special place for me, at least. And we've been trying to figure out how do we help leaders in Eastern North Carolina, the grassroots leaders, what, how do we help rural areas, right, with some of those the grassroots leadership development and help them to feel confident to be able to move the agenda for their own communities? So I have two uh, answers to that question. Um, I'm sure there are a hundred, but two based on my work. The first is one of the ways that we try to organize our work is through cohorts so that there are opportunities for peer leadership. I have found that particularly in rural places, leadership can feel isolating and the challenges that people are confronting can feel unique in a way that they are not. And so it is always fun to watch when you bring people from like communities across the state together to talk about their relative challenges and the opportunities for change to see when somebody goes wait that's happening in your community across the state i thought that was just my community that's not just us what right or there's somebody in the room who said i had that same exact issue and this is how we dealt with it and then all of a sudden you recognize that at least for us as a university, much of the value add that we deliver is just about getting people together in the same room and creating a space where they have the chance to make connections. So I think that's really, really important. Um, building that connective tissue, that social capital across um, leaders who may be feeling all alone in their communities and need to feel part of something larger and connected to others who are leading in the same way. That would be the first thing. And then I think the second thing that universities in particular are well positioned to do is offer to these leaders some evidence-based strategies among which they might choose. 
So as a matter of principle and discipline, I don't ever tell communities what I think they should do. I don't know enough to tell them what I think they should do, but I do know enough to offer them a menu of strategies and to share with them the pros and cons, the costs, the consequences, other collateral issues, and then they get to choose among things that have been tested and they can make whatever adjustments make sense for their communities, but they're essentially starting from a higher place in terms of their interventions. And that brings about and cultivates some ownership because at some point you're gonna leave and they're gonna still be in that community. So it has to be something that they can sustain. Exactly, and that, I mean, I think for all of us, starting with sustainability at the beginning has to be an important ethic. Yeah, all right, thank you. All right, so now I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about your own personal leadership. I know you've done a, few, a handful of professional leadership programs, one being the Eisenhower Fellow, but also the Friday Fellowship, uh, which I did a few years after you and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But why was it important for you to participate in these particular programs and how do they impact you? Ah, that's a great question. And I actually had not thought about it before this moment, but the values that I got, the, the benefits, advantages are the same as the ones that I'm trying to offer to leaders today. I was able to be connected within a network of people some of whom had very different experiences than mine, very different perspectives, but all of us were the sort of people who were in it to make the world a better place. And clearly I drew both strength from the intellectual interactions with people, but also mostly the personal, knowing that I was part of a larger um, constellation of people gives me strength on the days when I'm feeling lonely mm -hmm. and isolated. And the second is that I had the opportunity to spend um, time focused on what works, whether that is through the Friday Fellowship and understanding what works in terms of human relations and connecting to people who may be different. Or I went through the Marshall Fellowship and spent a lot of time looking at what works in terms of rebuilding a continent and have been thinking a lot about that in recent days as we watch what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And then in my Eisenhower Fellowship, I went to South Africa for six weeks and studied the truth and reconciliation process and learned a lot about what it means to move forward while not forgetting or um, making insignificant the past. Wow, now that one sounds quite interesting, Anita, I must admit. It, it was indeed. So when I went to South Africa and my Eisenhower Fellowship, I went as part of the first and I think only team fellowship mm -hmm. um, that Eisenhower has had. I went with a woman who is on the board of a foundation here in North Carolina. I'm also on the board of the foundation. And we really went thinking we would study that process and come back and think a little bit about how the foundation might invest in some kind of racial reconciliation process. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's hard to know whether the fellowship was a resounding success or a spectacular failure that we came back with the perspective that the context in South Africa, the people of South Africa were so differently situated than North Carolina within a big country um, of 49 other states that it just that you just couldn't import that process um, wholesale to North Carolina. But it did give us insights into what what we could do in North Carolina and certainly have been for the last 15 years guided by those insights in terms of the investments the foundation has made in every county in the state. Oh wow, great. You know the the good part about about leadership is that you you understand which pieces you can use and you tweak it to fit within your own environment, your own culture. And so it sounds like that's what the two of you did, at least. You couldn't necessarily bring it wholesale, but you could bring some bits and pieces and have used that throughout the state of North Carolina. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the other thing that I have to confess um, made this maybe one of the highest experiences of my life was we went as one African-American woman, one white woman, and we spent lots of time deconstructing our meetings during the days and what we were learning. And I think I probably learned more in those nighttime conversations over a glass of fabulous South African wine <laughs> um, than, I did than I did during the day. I, I came back saying I felt like I knew more about race in America, having been in South Africa than I knew when I got there. And that it's sometimes helpful to turn a mirror on yourself and ask the hard questions. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So let's let's switch for just a bit and talk about leadership through a gender lens, if you don't mind. You know, you've done lots of beautiful things and continue to do wonderful things for the state of North Carolina and for one of my alma maters, of course, UNC Chapel Hill. Have you been treated? differently because you're a woman, uh, a female leader, a woman leader? And if so, how, in what way, and how have you navigated that landscape? Oh, it's a great question. So no, it would be inconceivable to me that I could not name a hundred times where somebody cut me off or restated what I had already stated, and it was clear that there were male-female dynamics going on in the room. No question about that. Um, I also think, though, that there are times when not just being a woman, but being only 5'2", have allowed me to say really hard things in yeah. the room, and people don't get their backs up against the wall because, you know, short people get away with a lot. Um, and I have totally used that to my advantage. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, what I say to young women who ask me these questions is, you're going to pay a price. Don't fool yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you think that gender discrimination is a thing of the past, just keep living. Keep living. You'll call me. <laughs> On the other hand, you can't let it stand in the way of you saying what you need to say or doing what you need to do. And sometimes that means you have to call people on it. 
I've been known to say when somebody makes a joke about something, you know, I'm sorry, I don't see the humor in that. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not worried about making that person uncomfortable. They weren't worried about making anybody else uncomfortable. So, you know, hey, it's all fair play. You wanna you wanna not go into every situation being so defensive that you can't be constructive mm -hmm. in your contributions. On the other hand, if you're gonna be in a, a wallflower in the room because of your gender, why are you in the room? You're wasting up a seat. So it's a balancing act going forward. And, you know, I have two young adult daughters and they're both professionals. And this is my advice to them. It's a balancing act. Show up, make sure that your presence matters but make sure that it's also constructive. Correct, yeah, yeah. And so if we tag on another piece of your identity from a racial lens, how did that come into play? So in some ways it's the same and in some ways, Virginia, I think it's different. I think the allies that you have are a slightly different configuration based on race than they are based on gender. I don't think the advice that I give is about the same, which is make your presence matter. Make your presence matter and try to protect your peace of mind as you are going through this, the, the process, whatever the process might be, try to protect your peace of mind. In, in many ways that may feel unfamiliar to people who are not people of color, you spend a lot of time as a person of color going, what was that about? Was that about my gender? Was that about my race? Was that mm -hmm. about the fact that I'm short? Was that about the fact that you know, I probably eat too much lunch? What was, what, what <laughs> was that about? Um, and and that, can, that can weigh down and make you incredibly insecure after time or over time. And so I just think it's important for, for us to ask the questions, not be so complacent that we don't notice, mm -hmm. but also not become paralyzed by all the questions of what is motivating other people's reactions to or interactions with us given that we will probably never really know the answer. Like sometimes it may be that we're just horrible people. They just don't like us. What we said made no sense. <laughs> All of that is possible too. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so, so very true. <laughs> so uh, I wanna now hear a little bit about your leadership philosophy. How would you define your style and then the second part of that is talk about what your leadership philosophy is, if you had to give this little quick elevator spiel. Yeah, that's great. So I believe that my role as a leader is to help people um, accomplish things that even they may not think they are capable individually or collectively of accomplishing. And I think that I should do it 
in ways that don't leave a lot of fingerprints. Uh, former mentor, head of the community college in Wilson County once told me that I reminded him of a midwife. I thought it was the best compliment I had ever had in my life. He's like, you are critical to the process and no one will remember you after the baby is born. <laughs> like it. I loved it. I just loved it. That's, that's where I want to be. That said, I think the process can be pretty um, painful at times. I am um, a big thinker. I like big numbers. I like big impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think the people who work most closely with me would say that as a leader, I'm exhausted. Um, I can tell when I walk into a room of my teammates and I say, you know, I was thinking last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> the whole room dynamic changes. I start rolling. People's shoulders start becoming earrings. It's too much. It's too much. Stop thinking. Stop thinking. Um, and I, I totally know that about myself. And I try to be self-aware and transparent enough to say to people, you know, push back when it's too much. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not disciplined enough to cut it off. I'm not um, evolved enough to not say, you know what I was thinking last night? Like, I'm going to say that, yes. but it's okay if you say, Anita, this is the 17th time this week you had a new idea and we're done with you for the week. We're just done. <laughs> I, I I understand that one completely, right? I, I and my my team knows exactly when I've had if I'm sitting at a conference pre-COVID, uh, they know a conference because I'm that's where I get to thinking actually. Yeah, <laughs> and send and sending all those emails. That's that's exactly you know, right. <laughs> I just heard somebody say we could try this. Wow, why didn't we think about you know? Yeah, it it can totally be too much. Um, I get it. Yeah. So, so with the too much, right? How do you slow, slow down? How do you take time for self when things are just swirling? You know, I, I, I try hard not to use the, uh, the, the phrase of work-life balance because I don't think that's real. But I, for myself, I call it work-life harmony. But how do you, how do you make that fit for you, work for you? So family is very important to me and I try to spend the time um, focused on my family, mm -hmm. uh, both, you know, used to be little kids, but now they're not so little and, and now they don't really have that much time for me, uh -huh. but, but fortunately I've replaced them with aging parents on both sides. And so that's, that's a place that, mm -hmm. that I find myself spending a lot of time. It's not, it's not, um, me time and I would confess that I'm not I'm not a big me time person I used to try to do massages but the masseuse said I was stressing her out like <laughs> <laughs> I'm like hey wait I just had an idea let me go check my email first she's like no you're, you're, you're not well suited for that so yeah. I don't do that anymore I do love to travel in part because I am insatiable, 
people in my curiosity for new things. Mm-hmm. So um, I always want to go to a new place and check out the architecture and the culture and the food. Have I mentioned food at least five times? Yeah. Um, I like the arts. So I spend time at the movies. There is no live music genre that I can't get my head around at all. Like if there is music, I will be there. So something like the North Sea Jazz Festival where you could see 54 acts in four days that's my kind of jam Mm -hmm. and so that's really the way that i try to recharge it's it's like work i throw myself completely into it my husband is always like hey do we have a vacation where there is nothing on the agenda you know the kind where people (laughs) actually sit still and relax like no (laughs) no no because my personal mantra is I work hard, but I play harder. <laughs> so yeah. yes. that's, that's just, that's my energy level. And at my age, I don't think it's going to change. So we're just going to have to rock with it. <laughs> and, and at this point, just get, get used to it. And this is get it, your, get used to it. Yep. <laughs> you are um, well-known within the state and you are relied upon and called upon quite often. How do you handle demands and the of being accessible uh, to those who rely on you for for feedback and guidance and leadership? I don't have a good answer for that (laughs) question. Um, I say yes to more things that I can probably handle because I have a very, very hard time saying no, even though I encourage all people to do a better job than I do. I'm interested in a lot of things and I care about a lot of causes. And if you catch me on the right day, I am going to try to help you. Yeah, I think you should talk to some other guests about that. <laughs> and then maybe maybe come back and give me some advice and some good strategies for how you manage all of that. The truth is, there are people who feel overwhelmed, some even resentful about the volume of requests i'm excited by it Mm -hmm. it goes back to the point that you made about work-life balance versus work-life harmony Mm -hmm. this is for me it's life mission and so the line of demarcation between the work and the life is maybe not as stark as it is for others i I think I take good care of myself. I exercise often. Um, Maybe despite me, my children have grown up to be relatively productive young adults. Um, Most people would say completely productive, but I know them better than most people. So it's kind (laughs) of relative. It's kind of relatively. You know, but they're doing great things. So I don't, I don't, feel like I am losing personally by contributing to the betterment of our state. And I love this state. Mm -hmm. I want it to be a place that continues to flourish and creates more opportunities for vitality for more people. Don't tell my boss, but I'd do that for free if somebody (laughs) wasn't willing to pay me for it. Yeah. So I'm good. Well, and I think it, that is it's a it's a real personal thing, right? In that, 
this is what fulfills you. And while it, it, you may get tired, it's not tiring. You, you right. don't not do it. And so for you, it does fulfill you and it's gratifying. And, and you've been able to manage all the balls in the air and do it well. So, uh, so for that, kudos. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I don't thank think you. there's a right way or a wrong way to, to, to manage those particular demands. So I, I, I applaud you for it. Well, you know, with all due respect, I'm looking at you at the corner of my eye, that peripheral vision, and you're, you're managing a lot yourself. So, you know, yeah. I think that's just part of who we are. It, exactly. I completely agree with you. What are a couple of day-to-day -day practices um, that you do that um, brings you great fulfillment in, uh, in a, or that you would encourage others to do to find their fulfillment in their lives? So I'm a person of great faith mm -hmm. and I try to connect with my faith daily. I have what some would term unusual relationship with my deity, my God. Mm -hmm. We talk to each other all day as though we're best friends. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly going, did you see that? Is that me or are they crazy? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's not really my grandmother's way of connecting with the Lord, <laughs> but it works for me. Right? There you go. The, the other option would be to talk to myself. So I'm feeling better. <laughs> you know, I really, I'm just talking to God. Um, that, that is really helpful to yeah. me. And, you know, while the person who's in the car beside me at the stoplight might be going, is that crazy lady talking over there to herself? <laughs> yeah, like literally I'm laughing with God. That, so that, that helps. And yeah. it keeps me very grounded. Um, as I said, I do try to get some exercise. I am a member of a boot camp, which is hilarious. So I'm 50. Uh, most of the people in my class are like 25. Mm -hmm. So when the instructor says do 100 of these, I just do 50 of them because I'm like, look, they're half my age. I don't need to do what they do. <laughs> There's like zero shame in my game in this whole yep. boot camp. And, you know, they're like clapping their hands and trying to encourage me on. So I'm like, I don't know why you're wasting your time. I don't plan to do 100. I'm doing 50. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love that actually I really do uh, yeah no yeah happy no I'm, I'm happy with 50 i'm good um as you can tell i i love to laugh um i laugh about a lot of things it's not that i'm not a serious person but i do not take life seriously it's just it's not worth taking seriously and then i would say Perhaps the older I get, the more important it is to me, not just to be connected to my family, but to connect to my friends, particularly my girlfriends. It is so easy to assume I'll do that next year or the year after or the year after, but as you continue to live, you realize how little you can depend on the next year. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly, I prioritize just being present with the people I love and laughing hard with them. You know, and, and those are the memories that really matter in the long run. 
Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting you in talking about your conversations with your God. It took me a long time to get to that because of, of the notion of my, you know, your grandparents, my parents, of how that relationship is supposed to be. But once I decided that I, I got to create the relationship that I need and that I want with my God, it was liberating. Strange totally. Liberating. <laughs> it's totally. And I just want to go on record and say, I can't speak for anybody else, but my God has such a sense of humor. I am constantly laughing at how he pokes fun at me and creates the most bizarre things in my life just to show me you are not in charge, chick. Exactly. You think you're in charge, but you are not in charge. <laughs> oh, very true. Very- <laughs> All right. So now, so what are you, how are you making sure that you grow and develop continuously uh, as a leader? Oh, what a great question. So I, I read a lot, a lot, a lot um, of all sorts of things recently, particularly because I've been wanting to be more empathetic to my team during the pandemic. I've been reading a lot of how to be a great manager literature but I'm about to throw those books out the window and just go back to being my own regular. All right, let's do it. Come, we can do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and they probably appreciate that too. Yeah, you know, in some ways it reminds me of when I first got married some 30 years ago and I was reading all these books on how to be a great wife. And I was saying to my husband, you know, darling, it makes me feel X when you don't take out the garbage. And he said, all right, you are freaking me out. This feels like Jedi mind trick. If you want me to take out the garbage, just say, take out the damn garbage. Yes. <laughs> so I think all of us can only go so far from yeah. our authentic center of gravity self before people are wondering what is going on here so yeah i'm going back to my authentic center of gravity self there you go (laughs) it's easier for you and for your team yeah totally all this new (laughs) language is killing me (laughs) so i'm coming down to my last couple of questions what advice would you give to someone who is growing into their own leadership style and developing their competent competencies, but also maybe taking a positional leadership role? Yeah. So I would say be you, do you, but understand what's expected of you. Be you, do you, and understand what's expected. What's expected of you. So to the point that we were laughing about earlier, you can't be somebody you are not. Like that's Mm -hmm. not going to last for very long, no matter how hard you try. If you lean into the best of yourself, you will be the best of yourself. But if you're taking a position, a formal position, you need to understand what the expectations are. And you need to tailor the way you show up or the team you build around you so that you show up in a way that is consistent with the way you will be evaluated. 
the consistency and authenticity. That's right. Yeah, you know, and truly, uh, you know, I, I always tell folks, you know, what you see is what you get. Because if I have to pretend, that's way too much work for me. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's exactly right. On the other hand, I tell people who sometimes are complaining about their position, their supervisor, and they're like, well, I'm just me. I'm like, okay, well, but, but they're just trying to hire somebody who's an ex. That really are you. Uh -huh. So, so if, if, if the disconnect between you just being you is such that you can't be anything that they're evaluating you on, uh -huh. don't be mad that your performance review did yeah. not go well. So, so what you just said, what we've just talked about, with our young leaders, young professionals today, there's all these characteristics about millennials and then the, the new IGN um, group that's coming in, but they're not going to be like, like, you know, some of the rest of us and work forever. And they're going to have multiple jobs and they do want this satisfaction and gratification more immediately than what we, the rest of us may be used to. How do we help? How do we help this group still accepting who they are and what they bring to the table? and adapt so that they can be themselves, but they can also fit within the culture. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think that it's that distinction between who you are and are you allowed to show up as you are, bringing all of what matters to you to the table, and can you perform the competencies of this job? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that those things necessarily have to be intention. I do think that there are increasingly young people I hire who blow me away yeah. by how competent they are and how much of who they are they bring to the job. And I love it. I love the energy that comes from it. I love the no second guessing um, that comes from it. And quite frankly, it actually liberates me a little bit to be more mm -hmm. of me because they're just like, hey, this is it. It's on the table. <laughs> on the other hand, there have been young people who have shown up um, to work with me for whom I have said, you know, the day your competence catches up with your confidence, mm -hmm. you're going to be amazing. But you've been here for 30 seconds and you've now decided that you could do your, my job better than I do my job. <laughs> what, what is that about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love, I, I love it. I don't mean to be oh, I get it. Um, disparaging here. I love that amount of confidence. But, you know, like if, if the 20 something years of experience come for nothing and on day two you're <laughs> like I could I could be you then I should just go home yes yes take it to the house there Anita <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I'm going to use that one though that you know, the, the competency and the confidence need to be in sync with each other yes totally what questions or what statements do you share with yourself in the mirror as you with the person in the mirror? All three I've intimated during this conversation. The first is, if you're in the room, show up as though you belong in the room. 
Um, I know that there are a lot of conversations about imposter syndrome and I get it. But at some point you have to realize that you are not there by accident. You're there for a purpose that might be bigger than you are and you don't have time to be insecure, you've got to be focused on making an impact. The second is there is nothing that is going to happen to me today that I can't fix tomorrow. So there are plenty of times for all of us that we experience challenges, experience failures, experience setbacks, but I'm all about the thrill of the comeback the next month. And the final is my mama loves me. <laughs> it is true that my mother, my mother-in-law, my father, my father-in-law, they all love me. But just reminding yourself that you do not get up every morning seeking affirmation from everybody you encounter, that that's not what the work is about. Gives you freedom to do things and say things that might not be what other people need. And then go home and get on the phone and talk to somebody who loves you unconditionally. Wow. You know, actually, that's, that statement, my mama loves me, just it gave me chills. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> really, it really did. I don't think, I, that's not something I've put in my repertoire, right, of just making sure that somebody, you know, that there are, there's somebody who loves me and will be there to, for me and no matter what, right, unconditionally. Yep. Um, Yep. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but I see so many people, Virginia, who are in the people-pleasing business mm -hmm. um, and who, for all sorts of reasons in their professional and semi-personal relationships are really caught up in, does this person like me? Mm -hmm. and, and it's not that I don't like to be liked, but I don't need to be liked. Because my mama loves me. Yes. Yes. And that's, and you know what? That's enough. <laughs> that is enough. For yeah. me, that is enough. Anita, thank you so very much for, uh, for talking with us today and sharing your energy and your passion, particularly for the state and the communities within the state. Um, you are a very special person. Uh, I really do enjoy watching uh, your show on, uh, on uh, NC Impact and learn from you. I really do. So thank you. Well, thank you. As I said, don't don't be fooled. I have peripheral vision. I'm watching you and learning from you every day. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to your team. Anita, thank you so very much for talking with us today and sharing your wisdom, your experiences, and your passion. It is contagious, truly speaking, contagious. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking care of and loving the state of North Carolina and doing what you're doing for the communities within our state. Thank you for sharing some of these major points, uh, particularly the three statements that you say to the person in the mirror of, uh, if you're gonna show up in the room, be present and share your voice 
that you matter and that you're not in the room by accident, so you have a purpose for being there, to lean into your purpose. And then number two, that nothing that happens today can't be remedied tomorrow. Enjoy the thrill of the comeback and being able to fix it. And then the third, which to me is, is really powerful, you say, my mama loves me, which could translate to in that someone loves me and you know, fill in the blank of whomever that person is and that no matter what happens through the course of that day, that there is somebody who loves you and supports you unconditionally. Really, really appreciate that. And then one of my very favorites here, and I hope the audience will accept this one, be you, do you, and also understand what's expected of you. So you gotta have the confidence but you also have to have the competencies and those two things go hand in hand. If we can have both of those and do the things we need to do, then the world's our oyster and we're gonna, we're gonna open up to it and accept what comes our way. Anita, thank you again so very much for joining us. And thank you all for joining me today for Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey with Anita Brown Graham, the UNC Gladys Hall Coates Distinguished Professor of Public Law and Government and the founder and director of the NC Impact. Join me for the next episode as we continue the journey of becoming successful and effective leaders. This has been Virginia Hardy. I am the host of Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? Or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge? Join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.